what was really interesting was because we have that that culture of transparency and people use the word culture a lot but i think in this case it's true like very very transparent company everyone kind of knows what's going on so when we delivered the fact that like we'd heard back that we weren't going to get this envelope of cash or whatever we needed to to sustain the company i had fully expected people to be like oh wow that sucks that's awful like oh what are we going to do and like sort of whatever people but actually the first the first thing anyone said was like okay so we just have to go out and start selling right like this is what we have to go do and um that was immediately wow. after we'd shared with the team like this is what the future company is going to look like this is what the future team will almost certainly look like and that involved half the people on that list not being on the list anymore so mm-hmm. two things came out of that conversation which were excellent and i'm so proud of the team like one was this this feeling of like well we're not dead yet let's figure out how we stay alive and how we actually prosper right because we're mission driven we want to go complete that mission and then the second thing was everyone who was told that they would be leaving or wouldn't be able to stay um was like well how can we keep working until the end of our notice and what can we do to help hey it's renita and you're listening to the high eq founder a podcast about leveraging the power of your emotional intelligence to evolve faster and level up as a leader. Listen in as I sit down with deep tech and impact-focused founders who share how they've made hard decisions, extracted valuable lessons from their mistakes, and maximized their return on luck so you can do the same. Today, I'm speaking with Dan Watson, founder and CEO of SafetyNet Technologies, precision fishing startup on a mission to reduce bycatch and overfishing. Dan shares the surprising downside of winning the James Dyson Award, how safety net punches above its weight by collaborating with their competitors, and how being transparent with his team paid off in fierce loyalty, even as he had to let half of them go. Here's my conversation with Dan. Uh, we cross paths as speakers, fellow speakers at Ocean Ovation, uh, a conference on the blue economy, so finding sustainable solutions for the ocean. Um, and I was so intrigued to hear about your story and the deep tech business that you're building, because uh, what I think is one hallmark of deep tech is this ability to bring greater precision to the traditional businesses, so agriculture. Uh, medical diagnostics, financial investing. And in your case, with safety net technologies, you're focused on bringing uh, precision to the commercial fishing industry to solve a really big problem that most people probably aren't aware of, and which I understand is called overfishing or bycatch, which is where fishermen are catching the wrong fish or animals like whales or dolphins or turtles and they're not able to target the fish that they actually want to catch and, and be able to sell. So I'm curious, how did you even get into starting safety net, the technologies? How did you identify this problem? Can you share a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. And thanks for the question. And also, um, it's interesting that you say precision to, to businesses because we describe our mission as precision fishing. So it really rips off the whole agricultural precision agriculture kind of thing, which mm. is, I would say, probably 10 years ahead of where we are. But to take 10 years back from here rather than forwards. Um, so this started when I was a student at university. Um, mm-hmm. I was looking at looking for a problem to solve for my master's thesis at design and engineering. Uh, you were school. looking for a problem. 
Yeah, always looking for problems. And uh, some people in the world <laughs> just look for problems, right? And, and I'm one of them. So we'd been set this challenge of finding something we could work on for a year um, that would give us enough to work with that we could start approaching some kind of solution at the end of it. So mm. I remember reading this, this Guardian article that was looking at something called Hugh's Fish Fight, which was a UK chef, a guy called Hugh Fernley Whittingstall. And he'd been really going out to the fishing industry and highlighting a lot of these problems. And he had this movement behind it called Hugh's Fish Fight. And I took this to my tutor and was like, I think, you know, I'm in Scotland, I'm studying in Glasgow, I'm near the fishing ports, it's an interesting area. Right. Uh, I think I could work on this for a year. And he was like, well, it's a pretty big problem. Like, you can't solve this in a year. And do you think you can have a go? And it was like, yes, why not? I was a naive student. I figured I'd get something useful. Um, uh -huh. So I think uh, that's where it all started from. And then it really was like diving into the fishing sector and saying like, Who's in the space? What are they working on? What are the issues that the industry recognizes? What are the issues that the industry doesn't want to recognize? And like, where can we find where technology can play a part in moving things forward? And that's really what uh, drove me yeah. to, to get into it. Okay. So you found a very viable problem. And then how did you find the, the technology solutions? Did they already exist? Uh, were you looking for people to help you develop those technology solutions? So as a student, this was really my first foray into like a very focused technology solution for a, an industry, right? And but it had all been sort of I theory guess. before then. You're learning a yeah. lot at university and then you have to apply it. But what I quickly found was the first step was like, I, I don't know if you know the, the double diamond approach to problem solving. So like you, you look for a problem area and see where like there are lots of interesting problems. So for me, fishing industry, then you dive down into like, well, what are the individual issues here and what's one that I can focus on solving? And for me, it was bycatch and overfishing. So similar space. Mm. And then you go really crazy with like conceptualization and generating ideas. And you take after the second part of the di diamond, you then you take a, a more critical lens to that with some criteria and you say, well, which of these is actually achievable in the time, the resources that I have to go and do stuff. And you, you should sort of then do convergent thinking back to like that one thing you're going to take and work on. So for me, it was like, yeah, fishing industry, bycatch and overfishing crazy science-based solutions which i did a lot of reading around like light sound different sizes and shapes of nets like um different ways that you can catch fish and then which of these can i in my current state um start working on and for me that was light because it seemed like led technology had progressed a lot it was it was accessible i had a machine workshop i could go and work in i could go visit scientists in scotland and take this stuff out on vessels so those were the things that were led mm. to me to be like this is where i can make a difference and that's why i worked on it Okay. And so my understanding is you have three flagship uh, products now that are out there uh, using these technologies. Can you, one is called Pisces, which is a very cool name. Thank you. What are some <laughs> of the others and what do they do? So we have this, yeah, these three products. And if, if you look at the, the development cycle for these things, like Pisces was probably seven or eight years through the science design manufacture. Catchcom oh, is our wow. second, second product. Uh, yeah, because it was very science related, right? We had to go and do trials and experiments to like understand yeah. what, what Pisces could That's work That's the nature on. of deep tech, isn't it? Absolutely. And yeah. CatchCam was much more like we're building a camera system that has to be robust enough to survive the fishing sector. And it actually took us only 12 months to design and deliver a product to the market. So like it got much, much faster. And now with Enki, which is our sensor product, um, it's been a roughly similar amount of time to catch cam. And I think that's probably where our sweet spot's going to be in terms of taking technologies from the drawing board to something we can actually either prototype or sell. Okay. It looks like you're really developing some key partnerships with 
associations and other players in the in the ecosystem yeah and this is really massive for us so like we're a super collaborative company like to the point where we've even approached many of our competitors and said like look here's where we think each of our spaces is in oh. this problem solving right because solving overfishing is huge like we're a small company of, of like now 10 people we're not going to solve it alone but we can see where we can make progress in our part and what we can then lend to others and borrow from them and like how we can approach this together same with scientists same with mm -hmm. you know other technologies that you might not normally expect to see in the space we'll go out and be like how do we apply this here and i think that's part of the key to well it's a it's swings and roundabouts so on the one hand it's help us move faster on the other hand that collaborative thing does put us in some vulnerable positions where in the past we've invited larger companies into our space who have then gone away and built something very similar um and sort of just uh. disappeared and that's a risk of being collaborative right um sure and that trust element yeah exactly exactly um but you you take that risk got it okay so in a way um you're a small company but leveraging the power of other players in the ecosystem uh, hopefully building one based on trust with the understanding that there may be some risk that that doesn't play out the way you hope Exactly. Yeah, I think it's the only way that we can punch above our weight and try and make a meaningful impact in this space. Mm. Got it. Yeah. So you mentioned you have a team of 10 people. You've been uh, developing now these products, uh, that, that long development cycles. So 10 years, I think, since you were a student and came up with the idea. Did I yeah, catch roughly. that correctly? Yeah. So lots, lots of decisions to make in, in that growing process. Um, why don't we, uh, home in on, on one of those, you know, hard, important or big decisions that you made, and maybe you could share your, your thought process around it, how you went about approaching it. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, I mentioned we're now 10 people. So the now is important. Um, we were up until mm -hmm. probably last month, about 20 people. So our company is like basically halved in size. Wow. Yeah. And I think that's a reflection of oh. uh, of deep tech taking a long time, um, of the market being where it is in terms of investment and people looking for slightly different things now than they were for the last five years of investing. Um, and also, like to be fair to, to like the rest of the investor community, where we are as a company in terms of needing to get to market, right? Like we we grew pretty fast. We tried to do a bunch of different things. We probably hired more people than we needed for the stage that we're at. And it took a while to like understand uh -huh. that basically and look at like whether or not we had too much overhead for what we were aiming to deliver. So that's a pretty hard reality to swallow when someone sort of starts to highlight it or you start to spot it yourself. And then it's even harder to swallow when you realize that means you have mm -hmm. to make some pretty hard decisions about like what does the company look like post this like this process of change where you're looking to cut the burn rate of the company to a point where you can try through revenues or otherwise to reach some financial stability. So that immediately means, well, yes. people are going to have to have to leave, unfortunately. Um, we, you might have to do less of the thing that you really enjoy doing and more of the thing that you need to do to survive as a business. So less R&D, much more on sales. Um, you might have to get rid of some of the more expensive overheads, like your own premises or um, access to different types of machinery or services, right? So. It, it becomes this razor 
for the management team to be like, well, what do we like really lean, right? Like we know what our business is to, to sell. We know what we need to sell. Like, so what is the, the leanest possible version of our company that we can firstly achieve? And secondly, stand to work in like mentally after that whole thing has happened because you still have to want to work there, mm-hmm. right? And that's a big part of that decision-making process and not only you, but the rest of your right. team. So that's been a very interesting process for us. Yeah. Oh, I bet. And probably painful too, because it involves human relationships with people who may have been loyal for, for a long time and really added a lot of value to the company. Um, how do you think about the timing for that? Uh, there's that fine balance between taking enough time to, to think through the decision, but not waiting too long. Uh, any insights, maybe looking back, it sounds like it's pretty fresh, but um, any insights at this point that you're sort of gleaning from the experience? Yeah, I think so. This really stemmed from the fact that we had gone out to look for another round of investment, right? Realizing that our runway was was coming to an end uh, okay. um, within a set period of time. And that our revenues, at least at that point, weren't going to match what we needed to keep the company going. Um, we're in a better position now, I have to say. Like Our uh-huh. revenues are starting to approach break-even, which is super cool. Um, but that's partly through, on the one hand, reducing wow. our burn rate. And on the other hand, we've had some growth in sales, which is great. And that's been that's been good um but before that we were running a company that had too much spend for what we were able to do um in terms of the revenues and like then you could see this endpoint approaching and like we were doing what we could to try and extend it out like whether it was grants okay. or sales or whatever um but we then very rapidly sort of came to the end of our investment opportunities and i'm saying this publicly which is probably suicide for a company that like wants to go out and raise money next year. But like where we were is very different from where we are today. But yeah, it, it wasn't going to happen for us, right? Like there wasn't going to be like a magic savior coming out of the horizon to be like, here's the money you need to succeed. Right. And carry on even. So that point, the management team has to kick in and be like, okay, well, what are we actually going to do? You sit down on whatever morning of the week it is and you go, guys, this, this is real. <laughs> like we, we are going to be dead in two months as a company mm-hmm. if we don't change things. So how do we even yeah. begin to approach that? And that's how it starts. Yeah. Ah, oh, so hard. I guess at a certain point, though, the numbers are just unavoidable, right? There's only so much you can do. And then you shift towards how you're going to communicate the decision. Um, and that must be hard, right? Because you, you're not a huge company, even at 20. So there must be an impact on morale and the people who leave. How did you manage that, that sensitive delicate situation yeah and i think you know so (laughs) some of the some of the impetus to to cut the team had come from our investors right external investors and we have existing investors and we'd approach them and said look can we get a bridge and they were like okay well here's the things you would need to do to qualify for that and we then had to kick Mm. things into gear i think one advantage of our company is that we've always been very very transparent so like stuff that happens to the company happens to the company like within reason there will be very few things that we at the very most we'd give it a couple of days of lead time before we found a way to tell the company rather than keep it obscured until everything's too late and suddenly everyone gets an email being like that's it everyone go home right so what was really interesting was because we have that that culture of transparency and people use the word culture a lot but i think in this case it's true like very very transparent company everyone kind of knows what's going on 
So when we delivered the fact that like we'd heard back that we weren't going to get this envelope of cash or whatever we needed to to sustain the company, I had fully expected people to be like, oh, wow, that sucks. That's awful. Like, oh, what are we going to do? And like sort of whatever people. But actually, the first the first thing anyone said was like, "Okay, so we just have to go out and start selling. Right. Like this is what we have to go do. And um, that was immediately after we'd shared with the team like this is what the future company is going to look like. This is what the future team will almost certainly look like. And that involved half the people on that list not being on the list anymore. So mm-hmm. two things came out of that conversation, which were excellent. And I'm so proud of the team. Like one was this this feeling of like, well, we're not dead yet. Let's figure out how we stay alive and how we actually prosper, right? Because we're mission driven. We want to go complete that mission. And then the second thing was everyone who was told that they would be leaving or wouldn't be able to stay um was like well how can we keep working until the end of our notice and what can we do to help so i think i think this was partly also because like we we've known for a few months and we'd shared with the team that like investment was hard to find this was our financial situation we would completely understand if people wanted and needed to go out and look for other opportunities because they're smart people, right? Like they're going to get jobs. They're very, very talented. And we're lucky to have them, but we're like, go do what you need to do to feel secure. And so I think because we'd been that open and honest when it came to like, okay, well, I have a notice period and I might already have something secured. Um, I'm going to do what I can to help you guys get there. And, and that was all that commitment was completely played out through the entire rest of the time. And it was really cool. Wow. That is so touching. And it's such a testament to the culture that you built where people were so bought into the mission, it sounds like. And that's, you know, I think a lot of founders are afraid of this transparency idea of of sharing too much or not knowing how much to share. And authentic transparency can really help people feel invested in the mission. Yeah. And I'll, I'll be completely honest, like, I have to thank well, and, and basically give a hat tip to like my co-founders who were the ones who massively endorsed that. So Nadia Labs is our ex-COO. Um, she's also my fiance. Mm-hmm. So like I can say this glowingly of her, uh, but like she she really brought that nature of transparency sure. and openness to the company. Um, and it was a massive part of how we grew the team. Um, and I think you mentioned loyalty earlier in one of your questions and any company that's been through the last three years with COVID and all the uncertainty, if their team has stuck around and carried on working for them, that's a massive indicator that they're probably doing something right because it was so uncertain yeah. and there were so many weird things going on and so many companies against the wall that we had to rely on goodwill from our team multiple times and they always delivered. And I think it was, you know, you build and you earn that loyalty in some way by being good to people. So we prioritize mental health, we prioritize yeah. healthcare and wellness and bringing yourself to work. And, and I think that is returned when you do. And it gives you more resilience um, yeah. as a company because it's not just yeah. about, well, here's my paycheck. It's like, I actually like the people. I liked being here and I like what we're trying to achieve. And that is worth its weight in right. whatever gold you can find. Clearly, clearly. That's such a great concrete example of how that plays out. It's not just some abstract theory, leadership theory. (laughs) Um, So that might tie into the next question, which is what's a mistake or a setback that's given you valuable learning? So now you do have a a stretch of time to look back and have a little bit of wisdom around 
you know, what might have felt like a, a, a painful mistake back in the day. Yeah, I think there are a couple of things here, and I'll start with the one that, that references sort of what we were just talking about. So the first one is about is about people and phases of a company and where they fit. So I think one of the okay. hardest things about going into the world of entrepreneurship or starting a company is taking that leap to ask someone to commit their time to what you're trying to achieve. So it took me ages to hire the first person because I was like, well, it's okay if I waste my life and time trying to do this because it's my decision. But if I almost convince somebody else that they should be doing this rather than taking X job or pursuing X goal, then if it goes wrong, then I'm partly to blame, right? Um, so it takes a while to get past that. Mm. And I think that kind of also leads to a point that like when these people start with you from early, early on and you have to build that trust, it can be really hard as a founder later in the stage to see people leaving or moving on because you're like, well, you said you committed yourself to this and like, why are you leaving now? We're really close. We're making progress. And that, that can be quite hard to swallow. I, it was for me. I don't know if it is for everyone, but. Oh, sure. I think that's a mistake. I think in my opinion, it's a mistake because there are phases companies go through and people have different ways of adding to the needs of the company at those times. At the beginning, you're scrappy. You're looking for like smart people who are very agile, have like broad knowledge, who can like find different ways of solving different things because you have like three pairs of hands and you need 10 jobs. So you, you find people who are very good at like being adaptable and smart and canny and making the best of whatever. But then as the company grows and you need more defined and deeper roles, those types of people might completely lose interest because they like the research-based generalist mm -hmm. hacky prototype stuff, but they're really less interested in like SOPs and KPIs and all the other like acronyms that you have to deal with as a company Process. gets bigger and reports to investors and processes. Yeah. <laughs> and and I think I think the thing to realize and the mistake that took way too long to realize is that, that it doesn't have to be a reflection on the company that someone decides to move on. It's just they might be built to do something at a different uh, stage. Um yeah. and, and we've seen that happen in safety net. You know, there are people who've been like, I had a load of fun building this thing, and it's so cool to see that it's at a stage where it can go and do something else, but that's just not me. Like it needs to be someone else who thinks right. in a very different way. Um I think it's, it's useful to learn because what it does is it it shows you that the company is an entity entity it's its own person almost it's not mm -hmm. it's not just it's not names behind a title it's it's a, an organism that is made up of many different people and moving parts that come in and out and and contribute in their own way but it's not static but the mission is right the mission can be the the identity of the company right but it doesn't have to be the same people that deliver through every cycle of its life yeah that's so interesting because at the beginning, it sounds like you're, you're feeling so much responsibility uh, before you ask someone to make the same kind of commitment that you are. And then that sense of responsibility kind of comes back and maybe hits you in the face when that person feels like they're not a good fit anymore and they want to move on. So yeah, it takes a certain kind of emotional agility, I imagine, to, to kind of move along with those different phases of the company and, and people's needs. And, and interests yeah absolutely and there's there's definitely a moment in a founder's life at least in my experience which is there's a huge amount of your ego tied up in the early stages of a company right you've got to go on stage and sell a thing and <laughs> until such sure. time as it actually becomes a reality you're basically selling yourself and so like safety net was me and I was safety net for a long time and then you get to this stage where mm. it's not you anymore and it's partly massively liberating but there is a sense of loss of like oh well it could survive without me 
you know, like, and that's, that's an amazing place to be if you can get there. It's such <laughs> a, a, an incredible feeling. Right. But you, you get to divorce yourself from this thing and see that it can flourish. And it's not about, there will be times when it is still about the founding team or the management team, but it's no one person anymore. And I think that's a powerful place to be. Yeah. I think uh, structurally it's a powerful place to be, but there is that cognitive dissonance, right? Mm -hmm. Where you're like, yeah. but I built this and, and how could it not <laughs> need me anymore? <laughs> yeah, exactly. It goes up to college and whatever. And yeah. <laughs> yeah. How about, um, we had talked earlier offline about um, a, a, your view of, of delivering or putting products out into the market. Do you want to share briefly? Uh, something that you consider, you know, a mistake that you want to tell other founders about to to not make. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, I think I think I know what you mean. It was we were talking about how our first product, Pisces, was a thing of beauty to behold. So we were a team of design engineers, and emphasis <laughs> on the design, right? We'd been to art school. Everyone else that we knew had gone to work at Apple or some other hardware company. Uh, yeah, product design engineering, and so like curves on objects that make them look great, you know, and like. Um, and a lot of visual <laughs> stuff, but also the, the engineering behind it. But like the first product we built, Pisces, we built from scratch. So, okay, what makes that expensive? It has to go underwater. It's electronics. It has to survive. It has to survive a fishing vessel. It has to do very unique science, right? With a level of tolerance that we could then prove in papers. So like you're talking about um, looking at LEDs that are producing light to within five nanometers of a wavelength. So like so I'm doing that in a package... Yeah, complex and, and deep tech, right? And like, like in a package that a fisherman can still go and use every day in their working life and it doesn't break and it's easy to use. So we spent a ton of money and time over designing the hell out of that thing. And it was beautiful. And mm. loads of little like nuances and touches to make it more user-friendly and stuff. But it was super expensive. And the problem was oh. that like, you then have to go and be like, well, okay, now we have to get out into the market and see if it works and you've invested all this cash in it. So I think the big mistake was there was that like, we should have got to MVP way quicker. We should have got a box, shoved some lights in it with some batteries, built 10 of them, shoved them in a net and been like, does this work for you? And does the science work uh... before we over-designed it? And now what we do is we do that instead. So everything we do is from off the shelf components, we assemble them rather than make them or manufacture them from scratch, right? So. We use uh -huh. like tested technologies. And with the camera system we built, we just got it into the hands of our end users as quickly as we possibly could. And we we're like, would you pay for this? And that's the big thing about the MVP, right? The minimum viable product. Put a thing in someone's hands. Mm -hmm. Will you pay me? How much? And, and you can actually then find out if it's worth investing the rest of the development time. But you know what? Looking back, I totally understand it. Someone had given us some money to go and design a product. And we're like, we're going to make a beautiful, wonderful, wonderful product. It's going to win a bunch of design awards. It's going to do its sure. job and be amazing. And <laughs> of course that happened, you know, like, so we've learned a lot from that. Yeah. Yeah. But in your case, as, as far as um, I understand, it's also a question of adoption because you're working with these fishermen who may not necessarily want the, this newfangled high tech equipment. So before you spend too much time and money investing this, you know, cool looking thing why not find out if they actually want it and we'll pay for it like you say yeah and that's been a huge thing so like I when I started out as a student I spent a little bit of time on fishing vessels and then a little bit of time speaking with fishermen and then hung out more with like the 
the political battles that were going on in some of the other groups in that space and really moved a little bit away from the fishing industry right so naturally that meant that like end user needs diverged a little bit from what we wanted to supply because we weren't doing that very deep iterative conversation around like what is really needed and that was absolutely my mistake right and i think we've learned a lot from that and now our teams like are constantly on fishing vessels and like we take every stage of prototype out to fishermen to be like hey is this good or like what else could we do um and we have people on our team who are solely devoted to staying in touch with the, the, the guys in the sector and, and making sure and everyone on our team has been on a fishing boat so and, and continues to do so wow. um it's made a world of difference because now we get the feedback which is like oh this is cool i didn't expect this in your camera system but this reflects my needs and that's um that's really nice to hear I bet you pick up so many details of how fishermen actually behave when you're there watching them and not expecting them to tell you what they need. Right. Yeah. I think it's probably verging on creepy with us where we're just like, mm-hmm, yeah, okay, let's still watch it. He uses his left foot first. <laughs> <laughs> um so speaking about design though, you did win this James Dyson Award, which was uh, correlated with design, I understand. So, so tell me about that, and and then we'll we'll dive in more. Yeah. So the James Dyson Award is a global award that's sort of launched every year, and I think since 2012. And I was one of the I was the global winner, which was really exciting because I'd like just I was literally in a job interview wow. for another job when I got the phone call and had to take it in the middle of the job interview and was like, oh guys, hey, I just won this thing, <gasps> and then immediately got hired, which was great. So. Um, that was helpful, but what, that, that must have been a great day. <laughs> it was a very good day. Yeah, my boss never sort of like never stopped teasing me about it because like it was, uh, yeah, it was the most random thing that could have happened during this this uh, interview. But you know, um, but what that was was a gigantic springboard into like literally global media. Like I mean, we were in the New York Times, the Guardian, the Washington Post, like Yahoo front page, like like literally like front pages of sections of newspapers or like financial times and stuff because the dyson group has this just incredible media outreach like bbc like all the people and so what was interesting there was that like it was immediately broadcast as student develops solution that will solve overfishing right that was the headline right it will solve bycatch and yeah, like we had something that was certainly this tiny problem steps. that's been plaguing yeah, the exactly. industry for yeah. years. Yeah, there's definitely not thousands of scientists and researchers working on this around the world. Definitely not. You know, um, like this one student <laughs> has figured that out on his own in a year. You can all go home. Um, but like that was how it was broadcast. And so then suddenly you're on this stage and people are coming to you for comment and interviews and stuff, mm. which is also very surreal when you're like pretty young and suddenly this is happening. Um, and they're expecting you to answer the question of like, well, how long will it be until this is solved? And you're like, well, I mm-hmm. I just started working on this a year ago. Like this is, this, you know, we've, we've got some science is pretty interesting, but these claims that someone's put out there and what is what people read when they first see it lead to some really interesting results. Like we had one scientist or I had one scientist get in touch who was like, who the bleep do you think you are? Um, like you haven't solved this. But it's interesting what you're looking at. And here's some science that supports it. So why don't you come and talk to our group um, in Thailand and we'll talk about this. So that led to like getting up in front of 150 gear technologists 
in Thailand and showing them what I'd been working on so that we could start real conversations about it. And it was actually incredibly useful. Um, but there's this dissonance, and you mentioned this before, like between the reported story and the headline grabbing clickbait, if you like, and then the reality of where a solution actually is uh -huh. and the help it needs to get further. Um, and I think while it was incredibly useful, many years were spent after that, like rowing back almost on like how far that perception of where safety net was actually was uh, and getting to a point where we could walk in, I could walk into rooms or my team could walk into rooms and be like, hey, we're from safety net. We're at this stage rather than like, oh, yeah, sorry about this. Sorry about that. Whatever. Right. So that was that was quite a journey. Yeah, and that gives me an interesting tie-in to the to the question that I like to ask founders, which is, you know, the most successful founders aren't the ones who get the most good luck or the least bad luck. It's the ones who get the best return on luck. And, you know, for most people, winning the James Dyson Award would be a huge swoop of good luck. But your story kind of illustrates there's a lot of nuance to that that there were some aspects that weren't necessarily positive. Um, so looking back, it sounds like you were able to make the, the most of it, but it did involve this backpedaling and trying to manage people's expectations. And how, how would you frame it now in terms of, you know, how you took this piece of luck and, and did make the most of it for whatever, you know, came, was coming out of it? Yeah, if, and I think if that makes sense. Uh, no, it, it totally makes sense. And I think um, your point about like return on on, on luck is really interesting. Um, I think managing expectations a hundred percent is like the key phrase there as well. And because there is again this thing between like it's it's where one of the in, sort of intrinsic problems with deep tech, right? It is complicated, and it is multi-stage, and it takes. Yeah most of the time even the, the highest earning companies take a very long time to progress this stuff or like the companies with the most investment right so right it's about this understanding of like progress and staging versus solving like in entirety um and i think one of the things that uh. helped win the james dyson award was i made a video right i made a rendered video it was computer generated it was like here's a fishing net here's the stuff i'm building in the fishing net here's what it can achieve and i had to do that because most people find it really hard understandably to imagine what it's like 200 meters under the ocean in a fishing net and seeing how a thing makes yeah. a difference. So you have to illustrate it, right? So I had to find a simple way to communicate it. And then people understandably look at it and go, oh, cool, well, that's going to work then. That's the thing. Um, why don't we just, you know, let's go with that. And and so like figuring out how then to explain that, okay, this is a process and we're on the way in much the same way actually as people like the ocean cleanup have had to do, right? Like boy and slat went out there, here's my vision. We clean up the Pacific garbage patches with these big nets. And of course, they stumble on the way. There are things that are going to get in the way that they have to fix and mechanical, biological, whatever. But he sold the vision very successfully and managed to go out there and start doing things in much the way as any founder is intended to do, right? So I think there is a big yeah. there is a big gap there, which is like selling the vision and making sure that people understand that that is the end point and like what you're going to need to be able to get there is a very different thing. Um Tying into your initial question, which is around luck, I think we talked about this offline, but like a huge component of that is the simplicity yeah. of communication, right? Like you walk into a room and, and people talk about elevator pitches, like 30 seconds, one minute, two minutes, whatever, to help someone understand firstly what you're trying to achieve. And secondly, and probably more importantly, how they can help you get there. So 
if it's an investor giving money because mm-hmm. we're alive, if it's a family office, if it's a fishing company, it's like believe in this enough in sometimes 30 seconds that you are willing to do more work to help me get where I want to get to. And it doesn't matter if for someone that's like two minutes of work or five weeks of work, it, you know, it's still convincing them that it's worth the time and effort for busy people. So when it comes to luck, that communication bit is so key, like make it easy to understand, but also unbelievable, but be very aware that you will have to defend those claims and at least demonstrate really where you are and how much further you have Mm -hmm. to go once someone is bought in, um, I think is a very fine balance. That's such a great point. It's almost like that last mile, right? You can do all the work to create this amazing product, but if you're not able to communicate the value of it or the vision of it and help people understand how they can support you, then you're going to have that huge gap between the, yeah. the, the idea and the execution. Absolutely. And we see this across science all the time, right? Like you see these really phenomenal concepts that are, and, and actual realities that are coming through the scientific world where they will struggle to be industrialized because, and and this is a huge generalization Mm -hmm. and I'm sorry for even saying it, but like people that are able to devote a lot of mental energy to very deep problems aren't always necessarily the best communicators. Like, and so they might be groundbreaking, Mm -hmm. cutting edge science and amazing like ability to focus on things for years. Uh, But, but is, is that necessarily going to get off the science lab table and into something else? Maybe not. Maybe someone reads a paper that is produced and then they go, oh, here's an opportunity based off that. And that's the different types of people, right? And so what's been interesting is looking at things like governments trying to incentivize luck coefficients or return on luck by saying, if you want to now do a scientific proposal, we need you to write into part of it at least like what the commercial potential of that science will be in terms of returning on our investment in the scientific Mm -hmm. progress. And I think that has marked a bit of a change because it's like, well, yes, I'm working on graphene and actually that could increase solar panels efficiency by 10 times or it makes, uh, you know, whatever, better efficiency for all sorts of things. But without that necessity, like things get tied up in labs, they get tied up in test tubes and it's, it's hard to see where they can go. It's very abstract. Yeah. Well, thanks for that setup, because I believe that that is a a key skill that scientist founders really need to develop. It's to not only just be focused on developing the technology, but learning how to talk about it and communicate uh, the value of it. So thank you for all these insights that you've really, you know, shared from your journey. Some of it was, you know, painfully learned, it sounds like. But you're you're also extracting a lot of learning from from these mistakes, and I consider those that learning intellectual property that will serve you in the future as you grow. I completely agree, and I think I think people set out on a venture, and it can be very easy to be like, "This is my one shot," right? Like, "Oh, okay, there's been some interesting stuff, and like, I, I, I can't screw this up." Um, but I think, like you say, on that journey, you pick mm. up so much stuff. Like you start to see, not shortcuts, but you start to understand what's important and what's not and like and where real value comes from and stuff. Yeah. And, and it means that if you do decide to go for something in the future, you have all of that in your skill set. And it's incredibly valuable. Because you take it's, that with it's learned, you. Yeah, exactly. It's wisdom, right? It's not, it's not book smarts necessarily. It's like something you picked up during a process that will be in your head as muscle memory. 
And so when you look at the next opportunity that comes along or yeah. you start building something in your garage and you're like, oh, this could go somewhere, like you can put it under that lens much faster than you could the first time around. Um, and I think that helps when yeah. it becomes innovative, right? Thank you. So well said. That's really uh, one of the aims of this podcast is to share those insights with others so they can see the value of everything they're learning as they go along. So thank you so much for joining me today, Dan. Thanks, Anita. It's been fun. Thanks for listening to the High EQ Founder. If you enjoyed this conversation, why not share it with a fellow founder? And if you want more strategies for leveling up as a leader, hop onto the mailing list for my High EQ Founder newsletter. Link in the show notes. Until next time, remember, whoever evolves faster wins. 